Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. So we're happy to have our brother Don Pell. We'll turn the remainder of our meeting over at this time. Brother Don. Good morning. I hope you kept your place in James chapter number one. That will be the text that we're going to consider this morning. Some time ago, somebody, and I don't remember who, sent me a video. And it was a video of a man whose name is Clayton Christensen. Mr. Christensen is a professor at Harvard Business School. He was interviewing a Marxist Chinese economist. Uh, I was able, with some software, to extract the audio and put it into a Word document. So I'm going to read this little interview. It's really short because it is <clears throat> provides the theme this morning of what I want to talk about. First of all, Mr. Christensen is speaking, and he says, Some time ago I had a conversation with a Marxist economist from China. He was coming to the end of a Fulbright Fellowship here in Boston and asked him if he had learned anything that was surprising or expected. And without any hesitation, he said, yeah. I had no idea how critical religion is to the functioning of democracy. The reason why democracy works, he said, It's not because the government was designed to oversee what everyone does, but rather democracy works because most people, most of the time, voluntarily choose to obey the law. And in your past, most Americans attended a church or a synagogue every week, and they were taught there by people who they respected. My friend went on to say that Americans follow these rules because they had come to believe that they weren't just accountable to society, they were accountable to God. That's a Marxist, communist, economist. Mr. Christensen goes on to conclude, My Chinese friend heightened a vague but nagging concern I've harbored inside that if religion loses its influence over the lives of Americans, what will happen to our democracy? Where are the institutions that are going to teach the next generation of Americans that they too need to voluntarily choose to obey the laws? Because if you take away religion, you can't hire enough police. Now I've come to the conclusion having heard that, that any nation or society that embraces biblical principles will be blessed. Some people ask, why has the United States been so blessed down through the years? And my answer is, biblical principles work, and they allow us to lead peaceable lives. Now I'm going to start with a question. Can morality be maintained without religion? What do you think? Can morality be maintained without religion? If the answer is yes, then one has to assume that people are essentially morally good and they'll normally just do the right thing. But the big question is, what is the right 
thing. How do we know? Some are confused about the difference. And this is not new. Isaiah was troubled. He said, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Sound familiar? But there's a rule of thumb. It's referred to as the golden rule. You're familiar with the golden rule. Now, the world has its own golden rule, and the Lord has his golden rule. The world's golden rule is twofold. He who has the gold makes the rule. That's one golden rule. The other is do unto others before they do unto you. That's the other golden rule that the world follows. But the Lord, of course, reminded folks of a golden rule that actually preceded his time here on earth. He said, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is what the law and the prophecy harks way back to that time. Now, here's the real problem with this golden rule. The news is filled with people who do unto others things they wouldn't dream of doing to themselves. All you have to do is turn on your television, you'll find that to be true. And this goes all the way back to biblical times. Paul was a world traveler. He visited various places. Let's start with Rome. When he's in Rome, what do you see? You ready for this? Sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Sound familiar? Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. He could have visited our country, couldn't he? I have some experience with Rome. Some pickpocketer, I don't know if it's at the train or going into the hotel, relieved me of 600 euros. With the exchange rate of 1.4, that's 840 American dollars. About a month or so later, Vinny comes in here and he says, Don, I did one better. They relieved me of 800 euros. I often referred to Rome maybe as the city of thieves. <laughs> well, that's Rome. Oh, what about Colossae? Oh, surely, if things are better there. No, nah, Paul says, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language. Oh, surely things are going to get better in Corinth, right? Oh, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revelers, extortioners. They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God, he said. Well, let's go to Ephesus. That was one of the favorite churches, wasn't it? Therefore, and he's talking to believers, by the way, putting away lying, let him who stole steal no longer. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Now, Paul, the world traveler, decided to warn Timothy. You know, Timothy, I've been around, and I'm going to tell you that there are certain things you have to look for. He says, in the last days, are we living there now? Perilous times will come. Well, what's going to happen in the last days? 
Men will be lovers of themselves. Not here, right? Lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders with self-control, brutal, without self-control rather, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power. You turn away from those folks, Paul tells us. You know, it's clear for that some form of standard governing human behavior is behavior rather is, is necessary to protect society, to protect us from ourselves. The creator of man understood this. He set a standard for the sanctity of life, and he this standard was set way before he delivered those tablets of stone, one of which said, Thou shalt not kill. Way back in the book of Genesis chapter 9, God commands, whoever sheds man's blood, by his blood shall be shed. Why? Why? For in the image of God he made man. That's why. The recorded history of mankind would suggest that morality cannot be maintained without some form of religion, a constraining influence. So I looked around, I thought, you know, religion, we throw that around a lot. Some of us say we don't have any religion. Let's define it. The dictionary defines religion. See if you can relate to this. Can you relate to these definitions? A particular system of faith and worship. That's pretty good, isn't it? We can relate to that. How about this one? A particular system of belief in a god or gods and the activities that are connected with that system. Okay, pretty good, right? So far, so good. How about this one? A specific fundamental set of beliefs and practices generally agreed upon by a number of persons or groups. Sex. Well, not too bad, is it? Now, it occurred to me in looking at these definitions that any religion that stands to safeguard us from harm must embrace at least five basic things. And there probably are more, but here's five. First of all, one's belief in and obedience to a higher power. What's right? What's wrong? Secondly, a set of standards established by a higher power, meaning that he has to reveal himself. Thirdly, the sanctity of life can't go around just killing each other. Next, the need for peace among men, rules that allow man to live peaceably alongside his fellow man. And then lastly, a system of justice, the means by which the wrongdoer is punished for his deeds and the abiding citizen is protected. We refer to that as social justice. We hear a lot about social justice these days. Remember what Professor Christensen said. If you take away religion, you can't hire enough police. Remember the observation of the Chinese economist, what he said. Rules, he says, Americans follow these rules because they had come to believe that they weren't just accountable to society. They were accountable to God. So I began searching a little bit further, and I discovered that somebody had defined religion 
from the King James Dictionary. Here's religion defined from the King James Dictionary, which means it was using Scripture as a basis. Five elements. Here are five more. The being and perfections of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. And Paul describes to Timothy one who is immortal, invisible, who alone is wise. Secondly, the revelation of his will to man. Man has to know what those rules are. All scripture is given and it tells you how to live. It's important for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction. Next, man's obligation to obey his commands in a state of reward and punishment. A heaven to be gained and a hell to be shunned, we often say. To Saul, Samuel said, those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Then man's accountability to God, the one who makes the rules. Solomon figured that one out. He said in his Ecclesiastes, I said, my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. And with regard for rewards, Paul says to Timothy, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also those who love his appearing. So the King James idea of religion is fitting in with a scriptural context from what we can see. And then, of course, the last one is true godliness or piety of life with a practice of all moral duties. And Peter admonishes the believers, Be as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Now, they go on to conclude this. It therefore comprehends theology as a system of doctrines or principles, as well as practical piety. The practice, this is the important part, the practice of moral duties without a belief in a divine lawgiver and without reference to his will or commands is not religion. They define religion, they tell you what it isn't. So, maybe we have a choice. Religion or salvation? Are they the same thing? Religion or salvation? We saw that religion is defined by the King James Version using Scripture. How are we doing so far? Anybody feeling religious? I grew up in uh, western Michigan. <clears throat> uh, if you go to Grand Rapids and travel 30 miles to the west along the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll find the songs of Holland and Spring Lake and Grand Haven. And I was raised right there in Spring Lake and Grand Haven. That is a religious community. I mean a religious. There are as many Reformed and Christian Reformed churches in that area as there are Baptist churches in the South. First Reformed, Second Reformed, Third Reformed, Fourth Reformed, First Christian Reformed, Second Christian Reformed, Third Christian Reformed. Hope College in Holland. Another college there in Grand Rapids. Sponsored by the Christian Reformed denomination. Very religious. I attended 
grades one through five in a Christian reform school. You wouldn't believe that it's a great place to raise kids. I mean, thank the Lord for religion, let me tell you. I mean, crime, we never locked our doors. We just didn't lock our doors. If you were to go uh, on a Sunday evening in the summer, you could go to the Grand Haven Senior High School Auditorium, paid by taxpayers' money, and there would be a hymn sing. The place was packed. People would go there after church on Sunday. On another time, if you go down the main drag, Washington Street, which goes down through town and terminates right there at the edge where there's a channel that the Spring Lake or Freshwater Lake, the Grand River coming down from Grand Rapids, join together and go into Lake Michigan. Right at the end is a waterfront stadium, bleachers. On a Sunday night, in a public place, there'll be a hymn sing and a devotional. I'm told that in a little town called Hudsonville, which is near Grand Rapids, this was true then, I don't know about today, that you could send your kids to a school in Hudsonville and think you were going to a Christian school because most of the teachers there were either believers or very, very religious. Many of the things that my son-in-law David has to deal with as an assistant principal, and I'm sure Billy and Frankie as well, we didn't hear about that stuff. You'd love to teach there, Billy. You'd love to teach at Grand Haven Senior High School, Grand Haven Middle School. Still is a great place to raise kids. Why? Religion. They are religious, and it was such a blessing. They stuck great standards. Remember what Professor Christian said, if you take away religion, you can't hire enough police. You're going to have to hire a lot of police back there. But here's a problem with religion. It does not answer the question why man needs religion in the first place. Why does man need religion? Why would good people need it? Can't they solve their own problems without religion? Without standards? And you know what's missing in the King James Version of religion? It's the concept of salvation. Salvation. Salvation from what? Your fellow man? The state? Your circumstances? No. Salvation from sin. Does religion deal with that? Salvation from sin. Man's sin nature hinders him from pleasing the higher power or the God of his religion. You see, religion cannot save. Only Jesus saves by his sacrificial death on the cross of Calvary. That's the redemptive gospel story. The story of redemption, you know it well, don't you? Let's just review some of its highlights, shall we? The redemptive story. It begins by stating that all men, even those nice, law-abiding, religious people, are what? Sinners. Yeah, there it is. Even the good guys, sinners. All of sin. They all need salvation. Religious or not, need salvation. Religious might help them make a nice, peaceable life in which to live. Doesn't do anything with regard to the sin problem. Then it tells us we can't help ourselves. 
You know, some people say God helps those who first help themselves. That's nonsense. God helps those who cannot help themselves. You can't help yourself from the bondage of sin. You can't release yourself from the bondage of sin. Religion can't release you from the bondage of sin. Only Jesus can release you from the bondage of sin. Then it pays another great news. That Christ paid the penalty for our sins. John says he's the satisfaction of divine justice for all of us, for the sins of the entire world. And the goose even gets even better because it's free. You don't have to work for it. It's a gift. The wages of sin is death, but what? The gift of God is, yeah, there it is, eternal life. Wow. Having believed, God provides his Holy Spirit to come alongside of us and give us the ability to live victorious over sin. We're not living victorious over sin because we're religious. We're living victorious over sin because God has implanted the Holy Spirit within us to live victorious over sin. Now we obey the divine lawgiver, not from a religious code of conduct, but what? From a heart of love for our Savior. We love him. Why? Why do we love him? Yeah, because he first loved us. Ah, salvation always begins with God. Our good works are produced as a result of our faith. Here's what James writes in the second chapter. But some will say, well, he starts out by saying, faith by itself is done to have works is dead. Some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Finally, the redemptive gospel story contains a promise that no religion or codes of conduct can ever make. Religion can never make this promise. Peter says to the believers, you have an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled. It doesn't fade away. Your 401k isn't going to go to a 201k. It's there. It doesn't fade away. It's strong. And guess what? You have a reservation. You have a reservation. It's already decided you're going to be there. It's already appointed. We talked about time this morning. There's a time when you're going to receive and experience your reservation because it's reserved in heaven. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. So let's conclude. To have salvation full and free... Far better than to simply have religion, as good as it can be. I'd rather have Jesus than him right or wrong. I'd rather have Jesus. Before you consider the value of religious conduct, you must first consider the condition of your eternal soul. I say that again? Before one considers the value of his religious conduct, he must first consider the condition of his eternal soul. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What is religion going to do for you there? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, here's my conclusion. 
if you were to embrace religion, and by definition we discovered that religion is quite a good thing. I think we all probably agreed with most of those definitions. It fits in the context of what we feel and what we believe. If you were to embrace religion, which one would you choose? There's really two kinds. There's really two kinds. There's the religion that does not offer salvation. Yeah, that's right. You can have religion and not salvation. Do you want to embrace that one? What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What half them if he's an upstanding citizen and just lots of piety and leads peaceable lives? Or you can embrace the pure and undefiled religion that flows from salvation. That's the one James is describing in James chapter 1. It's the pure and undefiled religion. Your conduct flows from salvation. The one that offers salvation full and free and produces good works by a heart and life that has been changed through faith in Christ. He's the one who is the author of salvation. Religion or salvation? Religion without salvation? Or religion, a belief in God, with salvation? Well, the choice is man's, isn't it? It's man's choice. Sometimes he gets caught up in his religion and forgets about his salvation. Isn't it amazing that a a communist Chinese economist had a sense that only true religion flows from Almighty God, the Creator. But salvation flows through Jesus Christ, his son, the son, and the author and finisher of our faith. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we're thankful that this morning we have salvation. Yes, we seek to live orderly lives, but Lord, we want to please you. That's what it's all about. We want to please you. We want our light to so shine before men that they'll see our good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven. We want to do things to the glory of God. And we're thankful that the Holy Spirit gives us that enablement because we've been saved. We have the Holy Spirit who really helps us in our endeavors to live lives that are pleasing to him. Faith without works is dead. We're thankful for the evidences of faith that we see of those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ. We just pray, Father, that you'll bless these thoughts that have been presented this morning to the, the care and nourishment of each heart. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.